Hello and welcome to Making the Rounds, a podcast by the American Medical Association. Today's episode is part of our Health IT series from the AMA Medical Student Section Committee on Health Information Technology. My name is Christopher Jackson. I'm a medical student at the University of Toledo College of Medicine, and I will be your host for today. Today we're joined by Dr. Erica Augustine, the Associate Chief Scientific Officer at the Kennedy Krieger Institute. Dr. Augustine is a world-renowned expert on pediatric movement disorders, where she helped pioneer the use of telemedicine. Hello, and welcome, Dr. Augustine. Thanks so much for the invitation. It's really a delight to join you today. So just to start off, how are you involved in the health IT space? You know, my association with health IT really came about gradually. After my residency training, I pursued fellowship in experimental therapeutics, where my goal was really to learn about the conduct of multi-center trials. And I ended up working with the Clinical Trials Coordination Center that was in a phase of growth and innovation and expansion to really think about new ways to conduct research and new ways to accelerate the development of new therapies. And along the way, I had the opportunity to think about novel technologies, how they apply to rare diseases and rare disease research, which is my own interest and passion, and things grew from there. And um, until recently, I was Associate Director for the Center of Health and Technology at the University of Rochester before I started my new role at Kennedy Krieger. Um, What would you say is the impact of your work and have you experienced any challenges along the way? With rare diseases, there are always challenges. I think that clinical research is um, a complex endeavor. And then when you move to studying populations where the conditions that they have are perhaps not well understood, where people are geographically dispersed around the nation or around the world, um, that can pose all kinds of new barriers to conducting research. And certainly I think uh, across clinical research broadly, Um, There's a lot of work to be done as it relates to research access, um, equity in research access, and so there's a lot of room to go. I think in terms of the work that I've conducted, I'm really very interested in bringing about those new therapies. I really think of that as an extension of why we all went into medicine. Our goal to go into medicine is to help people, and I quickly realized that um, just as some people think about health policy as a way to expand the reach of that ability to help people moving from one-on-one to more large-scale clinical research and especially developing therapeutics, it's exactly the same. So I can move from working with people one-on-one in a clinical setting to ideally developing new knowledge or assisting in the development of discovery um, and new therapies that actually have a very broad impact or whole populations of people rather than one at a time. So when you're thinking about um, trying to move to develop new treatments, that that process requires foundational knowledge. Some of that foundational knowledge is going to come from the lab in terms of animal models and animal work. And some of that uh, foundational knowledge is, is clinical trial readiness related, making sure that we have knowledge about the disease and about the appropriate assessments that allow the trials to be both robust and rigorous. Or the elephant in the room is, how has COVID impacted that work? Because it's kind of upset everything in the past year or two. It has. I think we bring our, our whole selves to, to every issue and every, every problem, 
And I really think I benefited from my prior experience when it came to COVID and the impact of COVID on research. So as, as we talked about, I spent time at the Center for Health and Technology really learning about telemedicine approaches for research, about partnerships um, with industry and with sometimes not necessarily the most conventional partners, and really thinking about new ways to do research. And that background was really helpful when it came to COVID, when um, labs shut down, when clinical operations really sort of slowed to a halt, especially for observational research. And we were able to pivot really well based on prior experience of people on the team, prior experience and research that our group had done to move to doing research in a new way. So the main project, or one of the main projects that we're working on really does focus on that idea of clinical trial readiness for a condition called CLM3 disease. Um, another name for it is uh, juvenile neuronal steroid lipofusinosis or Batten disease, gives by, by several names. Um, and this is a neurological condition where there are um, investigational drugs ready for testing, but we still have knowledge to build around what are the best ways to test various aspects of the disease. Uh, we need knowledge that we're building around certain kinds of clinical rating scales that have been developed so that when those trials can uh, have that green light, we've done the foundational work to know that we're measuring the right things in the right people in the right time course. We developed that study completely with an in-person plan where people traveled to the University of Rochester where I was at that time to have a two-day battery of assessments. COVID came along. Not only was our medical center really um, not shut down, but really very focused on, um, on the health response, on the medical response that was needed for COVID, and research was taking a pause until we could figure out the best and safest ways to address those research needs. But we were able to move into an in-home model. So rather than having people travel to the University of Rochester by televideo, we were able to work with them in their homes. And many years before, we'd already piloted and validated a telemedicine approach for assessment of people by televideo. So we knew that we had um, a, a strong way to, to do that research. And so it really allowed us to, within just a few weeks, um, completely flip the model from all in-person to all remote. And we're able to retain almost everyone in the study, which is really remarkable. And so we've been able to sustain that. Um, and maximize our retention over the course of the past year, 18 months that we've been going through this, this whole pandemic. Do you think that um, our increased reliance on telemedicine and research is going to have an impact on our enrollment in studies? Because that's always the number one question with clinical trials is enrollment, enrollment, enrollment. So do you think, especially for these rare diseases where it's hard to get adequate numbers for uh, studies, do you think that's going to make a big difference? I hope so. I hope that we now have the experience that um, will rapidly accelerate all of the work that is ongoing as it relates to decentralized studies, um, rather than having many sites across the nation concentrating that into either a single hub or um, small set of hubs and being able to use sensor-based technology for assessment, in-home resources like home nursing or phlebotomy, um, or even in-home EEG or other kinds of assessments. 
um, along with televideo and electronic diaries and all of these things that allow us to reach people where they are. So I really hope that the experience that we've all gained by moving our in-person clinical assessment into remote models, I hope it carries forward into the future. There are some risks to that. There's still a lot of kinks to work out in terms of how that works in a trial setting, how we operate within state licensure requirements, uh, with uh, third-party engagement and really understanding who is truly participating in research and as part of the research team who has oversight of those individuals. I think there are a lot of new questions that have come about, um, but if nothing else, I think as a next step, we can move towards more hybrid models. Perhaps there are times where, yes, we still need to return to a site or people need to enroll at a specific site in person, but I think we have a broader understanding of what can be done in the home in terms of follow-up, in terms of making research participation more feasible and to really begin to start to bring real-world data, real-world evidence into the way that we develop the evidence base for new therapies. So I'm optimistic. How do you think this will affect the diagnosis and treatment of these diseases? So before people are starting to get enrolled in trials, how do you think we're going to be able to diagnose and treat these rare and orphan diseases, especially with, I would assume, a greater access to specialists um, through telemedicine than we would have normally? That access is a huge issue. And as I was saying, when it comes to rare diseases, especially those really, really uncommon ones, um, people are, are spread out and they may not be in geographic proximity to the expert or experts in their condition. There are some conditions where there really is sort of, you know, there are one or two worldwide experts and chances are you don't live near them. And so to be able to access that expertise, which everyone should be able to access, to have those questions answered, to have the opportunity to understand where, what the current status of research is, what are the new standards emerging for treatment. I think everyone deserves that information and that quality of care. It may not necessarily be that that's your core um, mental home. Having that in a regional manner is really important as well, to have that close contact and very close one-on-one -on -one in person management remains important. Access to Expertise, though, is also something that I think we can democratize through telemedicine and other approach, approaches. So while there's that potential there, again, we come back to concerns as it relates to state licensure um, and the ability for everyone to, um, to really navigate and to be able to see their provider of choice that might not be within their state or might not be within their region. Uh, so the interstate compact is growing there still are gaps. Um, there are ways in which we could think about exceptions for rare disease. I think there's a very strong model and a good case for that. Uh, it just doesn't quite exist yet. But again, I think this is an area where we can learn from the COVID-19 pandemic, where there were um, pathways for relaxing some of that, those regulations, for processes for applying for exceptions as it relates to those regulations, really with patient safety in mind and continuity of care. And having, having done that, although we're seeing some of those exceptions revert back to prior standards already, um, I think it, it allows for uh, a period of time where we can look into, well, what was the safety of those models? What were the issues and concerns there? And then really use that experience to build out what the path forward could be.
You took care of the nation. It's time for the nation to take care of you. The AMA stood by America's physicians and patients during the pandemic, and we're not stopping there. We're fixing prior authorization, leading the charge on Medicare payment reform, supporting telehealth, fighting scope creep, and reducing physician burnout. It's time to rebuild, and the AMA is ready. To learn more about the AMA Recovery Plan for America's Physicians, go to ama-assn.org slash time to rebuild. Uh, and just switching gears a little bit, um, you and I both in our professional careers have done a little bit on the management side of clinical research. How do you think that that's going to change with the changes in health IT? Um, and what do you think that'll be like in the future as well? We absolutely see that changing in a number of ways now, um, both in terms of access and enrollment and retention, like you were mentioning, but on some of the other operations as well. Uh, even before the COVID-19 pandemic, we started to see the processes around monitoring start to evolve as a standard. When there's a clinical trial, there are study monitors who really evaluate the, the quality of the data being recorded, the accuracy of the data being recorded. And typically that involves a study monitor going to each site, traveling regionally by car or through flight um, to get to those sites and to do on-site monitoring. And over the last couple of years, we've seen more development of what might be called risk-based monitoring using data-driven approaches to determine, well, when are those in-person visits really needed and when can there be more remote monitoring that takes place? And we certainly saw a lot more remote monitoring during the pandemic than we saw previously. And again, I think those are elements that in some ways will continue and have more natural paths to continue. We also see more saw more use of home health, um, of home delivery of investigational drugs, um, more uh, electronic consent or e-consent, electronic documentation. So all of the things that had been in development and slowly coming online during the pandemic, we saw a real acceleration of the need to implement each of those new approaches and methods as it related to clinical trials. And I think a lot of those we'll see stay. Um, some of them also need a new regulatory framework uh, for understanding what that is. Once we move out of the era of uh, the primary driver being participant safety as it related to COVID-19 into other models, well, we, we have new questions to think about. But the model is there and the experience now is there too. Um, but what do you think is the best way to increase diversity within the health IT field? Um, you and I are, of course, both African-American, but how can we get more people involved in the space? It has to be a really concerted effort. Uh, I think everything that we do has to have diversity in mind in an intentional manner. It doesn't just happen. I think it requires investment, financial investment, time investment, and commitment to do so. As a parallel, I, I work on a program that is focused on bringing forth and supporting the next generation of clinician scientists. There are many NIH mechanisms for this, and one for child neurologists is a, what we call a K-12 mechanism, and it's a national program. And we really set out at the very beginning of the program to want to think actively about how we were able to um, foster a diverse applicant pool 
and then ideally a diverse set of funded scholars. And we created a program called the Minority Research Scholars Program to do that intentional work, to focus on what I call the proximate pipeline. Who are the people who we want to see applying for our funding mechanism in a couple of years? Let's identify and invest in those individuals. Let's connect and mentor and network with those individuals. And, and I think we're seeing that program now in its fifth year with about 30 participants over that period of time. We're really seeing that bear fruit. We're seeing more applicants. We're seeing funded scholars. And I think that same kind of effort and focus and um, commitment to the idea of diversity needs to take place within health IT, within all of our various sectors and fields, if we really want to see um, our workforce in whatever the discipline is, reflect the diversity of the nation, if not the diversity of the world, in all of the ways that we think about diversity. And science has shown again and again, when we go and look at the data, when we look at the outcomes, that diverse teams produce better outcomes. And given the scope and um, depth of the challenges that we face in healthcare, we need all minds, all voices tackling these issues, and certainly so in healthcare IT. I think that was an amazing answer, Naya. Um, so as a future physician, where do you think health IT will be at in 10 to 15 years when I'm practicing and fully formed? Oh, I think it's hard to predict. I think that even looking back 10 years, um, both in the technology of medicine and the technology of how we deliver care, it was a whole world ago. And I think it can be so challenging to predict where we'll go. And that is probably the most exciting part about embarking upon a new career. When I chose child neurology, I thought that it was a really interesting field, one where there would be a lot to learn and a lot that would change over the course of my career. And my career is not that far along just yet, but I will say the things that are happening today in terms of gene therapy, in terms of our ability to impact diseases that we only just were starting to diagnose and recognize a handful of years ago, the rapid acceleration and not just personalized, but individualized therapy I thought that those would be advances that would take place at the end of my career, a few decades from now, but they're happening already, and I couldn't have predicted that. So when I look forward for you 10 to 15 years, what I can say that I will predict is that I think healthcare will look nothing like it does now. I think in terms of how we practice, where we practice, what we conceptualize um, as a clinic or an office will be quite different. And the ways and places that we engage with patients um, will really be, will be very different than from how things are now um, in ways that we might not guess, just as the COVID-19 pandemic sort of turned things around in ways that we didn't predict. I, I think that's what's ahead as well. And ideally, all for the better. Um, but I think certainly um, what will make for a very interesting career is what lies ahead for you and your colleagues. Thank you very much, Dr. Augustine. Do you have any channels where people can connect with you and follow your work? Certainly. Um, I can be reached on LinkedIn. That's probably the best way to find me, Eric Augustine. And uh, for more information or to contact our research group, Batten, B-A-T-T-E-N, at kennedykrieger.org. Well, everyone, that's all for today. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your time today, Dr. Augustine. This has been Make It the Rounds. 
podcast by the American Medical Association. Subscribe to Making the Round and other great AMA podcasts wherever you listen to yours or visit ama-assn.org backslash podcast. Thank you for listening.